0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 25th, 2022. Talking to you as always from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. It's one of our religious, national religious days today. I'm not sure, maybe not quite religious, but acquiring religious significance. Black Friday, when all the deals are available, the day after Thanksgiving. And on Amazon, which of course is one of the more aggressive promoters of Black Friday, you can buy all sorts of things, including a book by my guest today, Lynn Twist, The Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life, a book that's done very well, came out in 2017. And also uh, Lynn's new book, uh, which is just about to come out, Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself. I'm not sure whether these are the kind of books one should buy on Amazon, particularly on Black Friday, but uh, perhaps we can ask Lynn herself, who is joining us from San Francisco too, just a couple of miles away in the Presidio, a lovely part of town. Lynn, um, is Black Friday one of the the dark days of the year from your point of view in that we give in to the evils of money and our obsession with buying things?
1: Um, yeah, I think it's not exactly the best Um the best expression of our consumer culture. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, a. Uh, there's a lot of people who call it no buy day. Can you go through a whole day when you're not working? If people are not working and buy nothing, it's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, people that are promoting what's called buy nothing day. <clears throat> so the same day. So whatever, uh, you know, floats your boat. But I do think we're uh, we're in such an over-consumptive, over-commercialized, over-consumer society that we don't even realize what we're swimming in, that we're, you know, we want, 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 need, 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 have to have, have to have so much of what is actually completely unnecessary. And, you know, so then we have a climate crisis and we have people, you know, burning themselves out at work and we have people scrambling to make more money than they could possibly ever spend so you know we've got a lot of ills in our culture and consumerism may be a part of that illness or maybe driving a lot of it so that's kind of uh one way of looking at it and not everybody looks at it that way but i offer that as a possible perspective
0: do you yeah. think it's any coincidence that black friday takes place immediately the day after thanksgiving which is supposed to be some cosmic thanks americans give to their acquirement of of this continent
1: i think it is kind of a a oxymoron let's say or kind of a paradox that this time of reciprocity and contribution and gratefulness and thanksgiving and coming together is followed by ah i have to have i want to have i want to have i gotta buy i gotta buy people waiting in line all night at walmart to get in for the deals to me it's a It's kind of an example of the how, you know, kind of uh, stretched we are between two poles, you know, wanting to to deepen our humanity while we buy a lot of stuff to make sure we're okay. You know, it's kind of like a uh, kind of a display of of the of the extremes of our culture. So, yeah, I think it's I, I don't think it's an accident, really. And I think it's a very interesting study of who we are right now.
0: Lynn, you've met a lot of people. You're very well-known. You spent time with everyone from Oprah Winfrey to Mother Teresa. You've done a lot of good work in your life. Um, How do you like to think of yourself? Some people might be listening or watching this and thinking, well, this Lynn Twist, maybe she's a bit of a socialist, (laughs) anti-capitalist. Is there a way to summarize your thinking in a pre-existing tradition are you a um a christian socialist for example or a critic of capitalism or someone exists who, who exists outside all those boundaries and i'm and particularly curious as to your relationship with conventional uh, religious life given that the title of the new book is living a committed life that could have been a book written by mother therese or at least the title
1: well i'll just uh there's a lot of ways to answer that question and sort of a lot of questions in that question. But I'll say one of the things I, I like to call myself a pro-activist rather than an activist. Pro-activist meaning an activist for, not oriented against, but an activist for, which means that I, I'm not naive. I worked on hunger and poverty for many, many years, 25, 30 years of my life and still do. So I know that there's many places where people don't have what they need. Um, and uh, and there's a lot of things to be against. But I feel um, that my way of being is to be standing in what I'm for rather than what I'm against and then to unravel and respectfully address what's between where I'm standing and what I'm standing for uh, so that I'm not attacking, but I'm, let's say, uh, creating. So. Um, and Mother Teresa taught me a lot about that. She was, you know, she didn't talk much. She, she wasn't against anything. She was for, uh, and the same thing with Buckminster Fuller, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Martin Luther King. It's not that the, you can't uh, see what's in the way uh, and that the obstacles don't need to be addressed, but I like working from what I'm for, like from vision rather than being against stuff. So I'm a pro-activist. Um, I, when you talk about capitalism, I'm on the board of Conscious Capitalism, which was founded by John Mackey and Ross Asodia and Kip, Timble, uh, Kip Tyndall. And so I work with a lot of people that are running big companies um, in, in, a, in a moving from capitalism, which kind of puts profit above all else to a kind of conscious capitalism that I think is probably a transitional capitalism to a new economic system but never mind, we gotta take what we've got and make it more humane, more friendly, more more responsible, more environmentally conscious. And so I'm on the board of conscious capitalism and I uh, respect people who've built companies, especially ones who are caught in the you know, culture that that's all about more, 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 more and never stop. And you've gotta make a profit. You don't grow, you're gonna die. That culture is no longer viable on a planet, finite planet. We all know that, even the people who are you know running big giant companies that are trying to do more all the time like my friends at amazon.com for example um
0: are they think, your fr- when you say your friends you mean that ironically
1: well uh I sort of mean it both ironically and also personally because I have met with the CEO I've met with Andy Jassy I've met with Kara Hurst who's in charge of sustainability there I've I've met with um, the head scientist there because we work. I work in the Amazon rainforest. Pachamama Alliance is also my organization. Pachamama means Mother Earth. And Pachamama Alliance is an alliance between the indigenous peoples of the Amazon and conscious, committed people in the modern world for the sustainability of life. And given that I work in the Amazon rainforest uh, and go there very frequently and work with indigenous people in the Sacred Headwaters region. I'm very interested in Amazon.com, which is the largest consumer monster on Earth, named after the largest and most important ecosystem on Earth, to have them uh, actually understand each other and um, have Amazon.com play a significant role in protecting, preserving, and reversing the destruction of its namesake Amazon Rainforest. So this is a tall order but you know why not work on something that's pretty big and exciting and would make a huge difference. So I have had meetings with amazon.com and conversation with them about uh, putting a lot of their muscle and time behind the Amazon Rainforest and as they move more and more on uh, along the dial which they they're committed to and you know in my view could do a whole lot more but most people don't know what they are doing with the climate pledge, with electric vehicles, with, you know, they're doing a lot of stuff, but because they're so big and it's the company that everybody loves to hate, it's hard to see that they're doing anything but gobbling us up uh, and making us buy more stuff. But there is, there's some good people in that company, some hearts and souls who are inside of the beast, trying to figure out what to do to make it more um, human friendly, more uh, lighter footprint, uh, Find a way to take something so gigantic and give it a heart, uh, return, it's to, return it to its soul. So I'm, I'm a little bit involved with that. And then I also am angry with Amazon.com like everybody else. I'm like, come on, you guys.
0: Uh, Lynn, your new book called Living a Committed Life. Tell me a little bit about your life. Uh I'm not going to ask you. No one doesn't ask a lady when she was born, but where were you born?
1: <laughs> you can ask me when I was born. I was born in uh, in Chicago, outside of Chicago, in Evanston, Illinois, and um, my uh, my father was a big band leader in the big band days, so that that does uh, date me somewhat. And mm, then,
0: wow, you he would be given your last name is Twist, yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, that's my maiden. That's my, my married name. My maiden name was. Williams and my mother was a very active, you know, kind of civic leader, and she she ran something uh, called WAIF, World Adoption Infant Foundation, um, and was very involved in, uh, you know, all kinds of social issues. So I was kind of raised, and my my dad, being a musician, was very interested in um, in at that time integrating the white musicians and the black musicians and, and crossing that that line, that color line. So I I I had a lot of good uh training growing up in you know in in making a difference with my life and that was that was the way we were raised so I feel very fortunate about that
0: and how did you uh when and how did you decide to live this or lead this committed life what was the first committed thing you did maybe you can even define what you mean by committed because
1: well what I mean, mean by committed, interesting term yeah what I mean by that and This is sort of the central theme of the book is a committed life, in my view, is when you find your dharma, your reason for being, your purpose that's larger than your own life starring you. So most people are living their own life starring them. You know, how can I be more cool or more more thin or more rich or more appealing or more this or more that? And why am I not enough this or not enough that? And we're sort of consumed by our concerns about ourselves. Uh, and that's a life, you know, living a life starring you. Uh, I'm recommending or offering making a commitment larger than your own life to something really meaningful to you. So that nattering, you know, kind of self-judgment and doubt moves into the background. Not that it goes away because it's part of being a human being. All those negative thoughts about oneself and all of that. But what moves to the foreground is making a difference with your life, really making being up to something, up to something worthy of giving your life. And um, that's a committed life, I say. And it doesn't. Are have- you saying
0: that in a way, a committed life is being able to e- escape one's own rather mundane, prosaic interests, uh, leaving our, particularly our sort of our bodily interests and living more? Cosmically, more broadly, more planetary.
1: I think that's probably one way of saying it. But you don't—you don't abandon your own needs so much. You—you you just don't. You're not managed by them or, you know, hijacked by them all the time. You're—you're—you're—you're you're, you're, you're actually up to something larger than that. So, they don't haunt you so much. You still have them, uh, but you don't deny them so that's really an important thing. Otherwise you go into sacrifice and you, you become someone that's, you know, kind of like, I don't know, it it, it becomes too sentimental. It becomes too uh, inauthentic. But if you're really up to something and you find your Dharma, the thing that makes your heart sing really. And it can be being a kindergarten teacher. I mean, I chose ending world hunger, which is really what swept me off my feet. And I got very involved in ending world hunger and, with Mother Teresa, with Buckminster Fuller, with a huge number of amazing people uh, and worked for The Hunger Project for most of my adult life and then now work with Pachamama Alliance. And that's how I kind of ended up living what I call a committed life. But I think everybody who's born at this time in history has something to contribute to the times we're living in. And I'm suggesting that people search for that, discover that, find that, and begin to live their life in service of that.
0: You haven't mentioned politics, Lynn, yet. Um, Some people might say, well, this is all very well, but it's terribly American, this cult of the individual, even if it's the individual escaping themselves. Why don't you just join a political party? Uh,
1: Well, certainly in this country, uh, that uh, would be uh, very honorable for people to do that, and there's wonderful people doing that, and it's also such a toxic environment now because it's not we the people any longer in the United States it's we the money that's really how people get elected that's how people uh, a lot of people not all of them but make a lot of their decisions in the in the service of uh, instead of service of the highest good service of what will give them the the re-election campaign they need so badly and the and the money they need to uh, to, to to stay in office and the people that gave them the money to put them in office that they have to please. So we're so hijacked by money in the political system. But I do have a lot of respect to people who really care and step into that role. I mean, my God, can you? Imagine? Uh,
0: do you uh, you don't live too far from Nancy Pelosi? Are you a friend of hers?
1: Yes, I'm a very good friend of hers and her friend and her husband Paul. We we know each other as couples. I know their kids. So that was just horrendous, uh, this... She's, she's doing gonna,
0: good work, isn't she, Pelosi? Oh, she my God.
1: She's a, one of my great heroes. I think she should get the Nobel Prize. I think she's just awesome. I mean, if you can imagine dealing with the former president the way she had to for four long, must have seemed like 40 years to her uh, in, in that time. And now what's going on? I mean, she's totally, she's, you know, beyond what I can imagine. Her courage, her stamina, her wisdom, her capacity to keep, hold her cool and be effective. I, I, I don't know that there's anybody who can outdo that. She's just
0: awesome in my opinion. Uh, your book, uh, Living a Committed Life, is part of your Soul of Money Institute, or certainly it's advertised on the Soul of Money Institute. It's also a consulting and coaching group. You've coached and consulted, at least according to the website, everyone from Microsoft and Charles Schwab to Amnesty International and Stanford Business School and Harvard University. We actually just did a show with someone from Harvard Business School called Max Bazerman called "Complicit: How We Enable the Unethical and How to Stop." And I asked him about his complicity with Harvard University, which is hardly a, you know, a, a perfect institution in many ways. Um, when you choose your your clients um are you in any way complicit in what you do in working i mean you suggested you you talk to the people at amazon Sh- should one be careful about complicity in today's um society
1: um well it depends on who you are and where you stand i think for me um it's gotten so binary you know it, there's the the right and the left, there's pro-choice and there's pro-life. There's, there's left and right, there's here and there. It's all so binary and I don't wanna be um, defined by that or I don't define people that way. We've labeled people so intensely that you can't even, once you see on the TV screen or on the, on the computer screen, you know, Republican under their name or you can't hear them anymore. And for, to me, I think we just need to work together as human beings. And I think in every institution, there are human beings who want the world to be a better place. I mean, there I don't really subscribe to there's evil people out there. So I'm open to working with anyone. Right now, I, I do some private coaching with several of the global billionaires and their families, some of the people that are very, very famous because they've attained enormous amounts of money and um they have their problems too they are it's like um flooded with money like you know drowning in money and that's not it sounds wonderful for those of us that don't have a lot of money but it's not fun it's 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 they're really drowning and so uh i work with them with their kids with their families oftentimes people are suing each other the kids are so confused because yeah
0: we, we did a show actually um earlier this week um with a woman called uh Christ, uh kristen um uh kristen Kafella. she has a new book out the myth of the silver spoon i think she would probably agree with you although we shouldn't feel as she says we, sh- we can't really feel that sorry for these people i mean uh, there are, there are, and you know this obviously a lot better than, than anyone that when, when you're starving or homeless, uh, that's when we should feel sorry for people. I, I want to come back to your thing about this binary. I mean, you learned it earlier, you're close friends with Nancy Pelosi, you didn't say very nice things about Donald Trump, I'm no big fan of his either. Um, we, how, how do we escape that binariness? How do you escape it if you're close to Pelosi and uh, a great critic of Donald Trump?
1: Well, I, I, I hope I didn't uh, say his name. Uh, I said the former president was difficult to work with. I, mm. I have really worked to find a place in my humanity for someone like him who behaved and continues to behave in a in a way that I don't subscribe to or agree with. Um, I would consider him a troubled soul with a very very skillful capacity to manipulate and uh, and very smart uh, brain. You know, obviously really really intelligent. But uh, I, I don't agree with his values. But I, I, the thing about either or is just killing us because we can't talk to each other, and I don't think that's healthy. So I, when I say binary, it's almost like you're for or against stuff rather than you're for everyone. And there's people that you can work with, and there's people that it's more difficult to work with, or you don't agree with them about everything. But deep down, underneath it all, you know, and maybe not everybody believes this, but I, this is where I stand, and I'm not saying this is true or false. This is a healthy way for me to live life is it inside of everyone is a heart and soul that really wants to make this world a better place, wants to recognize people's humanity, wants to find ways to connect. And then it gets covered over with apathy, with disappointment, with hurt, with with damage uh, that that turns them into people who are, are, have lost touch with that. So, you know, there's that wonderful, I think, very important phrase, hurt people hurt people and healed people heal people. So I'm on the track or train of, of finding ways to include rather than exclude and finding ways to include uh, so that we can talk to each other, so we can move the ball forward, so we can get through the wormhole we're in. You know, this is a climate crisis, a health crisis, an economic crisis, a political crisis. There's just crises all over the place. In order to get through it, we need to find how to connect with each other, even though we don't like each other. Not liking each other doesn't mean we can't work together. Doesn't mean we can't respect each other. Doesn't mean we can't find our way through. So conflict can be very creative if it's not held as, um, as absolute that's well, tough what I'm talking about, but Gandhi did it, Martin Luther King did it, you know, it's doable.
0: It's what do you just, mean Gandhi uh, did it and uh, Martin Luther King? What exactly did they do and what can we learn from them?
1: Well, Gandhi did not hate the British. He hated the system that uh, demeaned both the oppressor and the oppressed. Uh, even, even Mandela, I had the good fortune to have a know uh, archbishop tutu and have met mandela and mandela i went to his inauguration he he told this amazing story i'll i'll try to make it quick but he said that in the 17th year of his imprisonment he realized he might be in prison for the rest of his life this is mandela and there were three jailers who who watched over him and they each had an 8 hour shift and he hated them and they hated him and his daily fare was torture uh, mm-hmm. hard labor and solitary confinement And there was a point in the 17th year of his imprisonment where he realized that that he needed to find a way to to find a place in his heart for these three men. He might be there for the rest of his life. So he started to try to find their heart and soul. And by the end of the year, he had realized that he could love them, even though they were so cruel to him. But they were human, that they had children. He drilled the names of their wives and their kids. And then he... That's when he took charge of the movement from prison because he realized the oppressor was in as much pain in some deep way as the oppressed, and he needed to liberate both the oppressed and the oppressor. And I say that that's the way King worked, that's the way Gandhi worked, that's the way we can work. We can see that people who are are blind by ha- anger and hate are, are are there's something deeply wounded in them um and that they like saddam hussein was beaten bloody when he was a child he learned nothing but violence and cruelty from his father and then he grew up to you know recreate that but uh, hurt people hurt people heal people heal people. That phrase really sticks in my mind. Um, That's comes from people who work in prison system. Uh, Jacques, what's his name? Jacques something who who says that. But I I, I think that's possible always. It's always possible to redeem the the wonderful uh, song, Amazing Grace was written by a former slave trader who realized what he was doing was so cruel and then he became a, a minister. So I think everybody's salvageable, let's put it that way. Now, you know, everybody doesn't have to agree with this, but this is one way to live. Um, and it, it works because then you're not filled with hate because that makes you as sick as it does the person, probably you are sicker than the person you hate. It makes you more miserable than what you're trying to make them feel miserable about. So I've, I've learned that um, from some of those great leaders and, and from Mandela from Archbishop Tutu. I obviously never knew Gandhi, but I I knew, I now know and have worked with in, in, in India people who were his fifth son, Ramakrishna Ram Bijaj, who was raised by Gandhi, was a close friend of mine, and he he taught us uh, in the Hunger Project how Gandhi managed the horrendous cruelty of the British and never hated them, saw how blinded they were by the system that they were perpetuating and that it was really the system that they, in some ways, needed to see uh, that they'd never seen before, how cruel it was. So, you know, I don't know. There's always a way through. But I'm a possibilist, as you can tell. I'm an optimist. I'm a possibilist. That's the way I choose to live. Uh, So I always look for what's the possibility. And in every breakdown, I believe, and I write this in my book, in every breakdown, even the most serious, like the climate crisis, there are the seeds for a breakthrough that's greater than the breakdown. It's always there. If you look for it, water and fertilize those seeds in the breakdown, a breakthrough is possible that's greater than the breakdown. So for example, climate change or the pandemic, we can consider could be happening not to us, but for us, because we're off course, and we need a big wake-up call. A
0: big, there, um, I mean, big the more call. I listen to you, I feel some that I might be, if not in church, certainly listening to a preacher. You say the greatest threat to creating the future we want is fear, disgru- discouragement and, and cynicism. So as you say, you're a possibilist. Uh, you're a pro-activist possibilist. Um, you, you bring up Mandela and Martin Luther King. They were both politicians. Are you calling... Um, Lynn for a a sort of a religious, maybe even a sort of secular religious revival where, when you think about American history, would you go back to the civil war perhaps? I mean, is there a moment in history where we can look back and think they did it so we can do it too? Well, I would call it spiritual rather than religious um,
1: because that's, I think what Gandhi and Martin Luther King were. They, they, uh, you know, Martin Luther King was a minister. He wasn't a politician, although he was very skillful. He was never elected to office. Neither was Gandhi. Um, but they they lived from the stand they took. That's another part of my book.
0: Okay, now I take the point. So uh, let, let's get rid of the, the word religious, spiritual. So you're, you're calling for a kind of spiritual revival. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I would say spiritual revival... Or for people who don't uh, subscribe to something, let's see, spiritual, you could say, let's see, what is it that is the unseen or it could be evolution or the natural world or um, that which is greater than we can understand? Uh, that's what I'm talking about here. And uh, I
0: th- uh, Leaving aside India and... In- which is different from America. Are there, are there moments in American history? Is it the 1960s with with MLK that we're trying to go back to as for inspiration at least and learning from the past?
1: Well, maybe because I'm I'm in my 70s and that was when I was in college and in
0: right. No, I'm not being critical. I'm just curious as what w- what we can learn from because that was also a period of enormous violence. Of course, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Um, and of a country profoundly, violently divided. Well, I'll just
1: since you mentioned that, I'll just say when I, when I was in my you know twenties, uh, I was active with stop trying to stop the Vietnam War, where you know people I knew were being killed uh, and going to Vietnam or the Peace Corps if they could, if they could, and um, there were. Four assassinations in five years in my generation was, I think, very deeply, uh, you could say, moved or
0: traumatized,
1: formed by that. You know, Martin Luther King, uh, John President Kennedy was was killed my freshman year of college. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, President Kennedy, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. Four assassinations in five years for big heroes for my generation, at least my my people that I was hanging out with, civil rights movement, the Vietnam war movement to stop the war. And that really, it was like a knife in our heart, bang, bang, bang. And then I think it strengthened us actually because the people that I know that are in my age group now are still, they're not retired. They're (laughs) refired by the, by the, the climate crisis, by the, Political divide. They're they're still actively working to uh, move the dial. So maybe it has to do with my generation. I don't know, but I'm just saying. I do think that there's a spiritual revolution. I think there's an evolutionary activism showing up, like we're evolving beyond this divisiveness. You know, you don't see a lot of that because the press doesn't report on it. Hopefully, you do by having me on on your show. But there, I think there's an evolutionary leap taking place. I actually think, if you'll let me just say this kind of strange uh, statement, I think the pandemic could be seen as morning sickness for a species that's pregnant to recreate itself and evolve, our species. Uh, everything comes from the earth, including the virus, including the pandemic, and and the climate crisis is also feedback from, you know, the mother. And we're we're as a species, we're off course. We know it. Everybody knows it. Everybody can feel it. You can feel it in your bodies. You know, autism is on the rise and mental health is like out of control and cancer's everywhere. And we're off course, not just physically and biologically, but mentally and emotionally and, and I'll I'll say spiritually and and ontologically. Ontology is the way of being. It's not spiritual or psychological or or philosophical. It's ontological or ways of being. And we're getting feedback that's very powerful and, I think, giving us the opportunity to correct course and maybe resource ourselves, re-re be reborn as a species that's You know, we're in the first century of the third millennium. We're at the beginning of the next thousand years. Maybe something really that epic is taking place. Maybe. I don't know. I like to look at it that way because it empowers me. Whether it's true or false, it's empowering. And it puts...
0: Yeah, I take your point. Let's end on something more slightly more concrete. We had Ken Honda on the show.
1: Oh, yeah. Um,
0: He has an interesting book, Happy Money, which in, in some ways, I guess, is is not completely disconnected with your soul of money. And, and Honda makes some very concrete suggestions about making peace with our money. Now, you did that in your book, The Soul of Money. In terms of this new book, Living a Committed Life, perhaps we might end with one or two very concrete suggestions that are realizable for everyone watching and listening, stuff that we can all do that that isn't too ambitious. Most of us, for better or worse, can't become... Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King, but we can all do something. Where can we start then to live a committed life?
1: <clears throat> well, I love Ken Hunt and he's a good friend of mine. So we're, we're great buddies. Yeah, I'd
0: like to actually, I think the two of you on the show together would be a lot of fun. Actually. Yeah, I thought of I, you uh, when I did the show and I thinking of him now when I'm doing the conversation yeah, with you.
1: He's a wonderful guy. Well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll say, because we just passed the Thanksgiving holiday or we're still in it.
0: Black um, Friday, no buying on Black Friday, <laughs> I assume, Lynn, right?
1: Um, well, one thing is to reduce your uh, your any habits that take more than you need, which is kind of everything we do. And to pay attention to when you have enough. And that's what Soul of Money is all about, that book. And enough is a distinction that's very hard to find in consumer culture. But to find a way to, when have you had enough to eat? When do you buy enough? When do you enough especially during holiday season and a very practical thing is to shop in the house what is it that you no longer need that has meaning for you maybe it's a rock maybe it's a cup maybe it's a piece of art that you're ready or a book that you're ready to wrap up with a little note and give to somebody you love and say this has been very meaningful for me i'm ready to pass it on shop in the house number one uh Give your kids, if you have children, a Thanksgiving gift of some amount of financial money, like maybe depends on how old they are, but let's say $500 that they and ask them to find three places to contribute it and to volunteer to at least one of them between now and Hanukkah or New Year's or whatever you celebrate Christmas and then share why they gave money to those three things and what they, where they volunteered and what difference did it make for them? So that's a, you know, initiating a practice of philanthropy and, 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 service. And a third thing would be to give you the gift of time in the holiday season promise to, you know, help your friend clean out their garage or give your, uh, your wife or your husband, or your girlfriend, or your mom um, a day of uh, hiking and, I'll fix a meal for you and uh, you know, I'm your kind of slave for a day. Uh, rather than buying a bunch of stuff. And then fourth, uh, gratitude. Live in, in actually go to Brother David Ross website, gratefulness.org. Start receiving a gratitude message every morning and and write something every night in a journal or even just think about it before you go to sleep. Not what didn't I get done today or what what's dribbling over tomorrow, but what happened today that I'm so grateful for? What are the five things? Clean and safe water, sunshine, a conversation with a friend, a really beautiful tuna sandwich at lunch, you know, five things you're grateful for. It's a muscle. And when you exercise that muscle, just like practicing a tennis serve, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And you start to live in gratefulness rather than complaint. So those are four things.